Spread the fire, welcome back to SMWX. And today, I may be more excited than I've ever been for an episode. I'm joined by Pathbreaker, a true pioneer for racial justice, D. Ray McKesson, civil rights activist, community organizer, host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, author of On the Other Side of Justice, and all around uh, Twitter extraordinaire. <laughs> it's good to be here thank you so much for joining us on smwx dray um we we appreciate it yeah i'm excited to have these conversations you know i i think that we are only better when we are in community with each other and and the more and more we talk about the issues that we face like the better we are so i'm excited uh, to talk to you i remember you pushed me to think about things differently when we had that panel that we were on so mm. uh, so here we are well, the honor is really mine. And I want to start where we are right now. Um, President Trump is uh, refusing to accept the outcome of, of the recent US election. And I was just thinking that this hasn't really been framed as a disenfranchisement question as much as like an anti-democratic question. But the more I've thought about it, the more one of the messages seems to be votes of certain people shouldn't matter um, and votes of other people should matter. And that's an old story, even though it's coming in a new guise. Um, I wanted to put that to you and just see what you thought about, you know, the framing of this as, as an attempt at disenfranchisement, even if it's a failure of an attempt. Um, that seems to be one of the, the motives. Yeah, I think that I think that this has been pretty transparent disenfranchisement. We know that voter fraud, that when the right talks about voter fraud, that is just a proxy for people of color voting and not voting for them. So we know <laughs> that like, you know, this idea that, you know, dead people voted and people who didn't da 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 and like people lied about them their names and people voted for their friends, all that stuff. Like that's just a proxy for like, how dare those people of color, those black people, those brown people, how dare they vote for somebody else? So we're gonna try and like jam the system up. So that's what we see. You know, we also saw a lot of disinformation, right? So when you see Trump being like, I did more for black people or when he is, he's spreading super predator or he's like spreading these anti-democratic party narratives He's doing it to suppress the vote. Like that is also a part of the a, a part of the strategy. So the only reason why Trump isn't conceding right now, he's not verbally conceding. The government is making a transition, thank God. But the reason why he's keeping the rhetoric really high is because he is raising money. He can still run again. So you know you can you can be president twice. Uh, so he can still run. Oh, so he has know. raised like I know he's raised like a hundred million dollars post election day because he'll need you know he's not a billionaire. He's going to need money to like keep whatever he's going to do going for the next four years. So that's what he's playing in right now. But it is heavily racially coded. You know, he has reinstituted the death penalty or he took the moratorium off. So there will be a set of death penalty cases that will happen uh, right before the inauguration uh, executions. And you're just like, Trump, let us go. Like we're like 50 days out. Like let us just like ride into the sunset. Absolutely. And you know, I guess this is an interesting moment. It's a moment of some hope, maybe just because of how torrid that the Trump era has been for, for, for everyone. Um, it just feels like 
the rhetoric um, of the Trump era has spread into many different countries, including South Africa. But it's also a time when I suppose we need to be on guard for um, not being wrong-footed by the, the rhetoric of the, of the Biden era, um, which of course also has uh, ramifications outside the US. Um, so what are you hopeful about right now with this moment of transition and what are you worried about? Yeah, I'd actually, so before I say that, I'm interested to know what are the ramifications of Trump across the globe, right? Like, I, you know, because I'm here, we see the terror. So, I mean, he's like a terror because he is a terror for us. Uh, but I have to imagine that he is perhaps more than a laughing stock uh, across the, the world. That Like, you probably think he's a laughing stock, but, but how, does, how does Trump uh, impact the world you're in? You know, from my perspective, you know, Trump is a laughing stock, but but the joke kind of stops becoming funny when you realize how much power he wields globally. Um, and and so, on the one hand, there's there's this great fear that he could do something irrational um, with UN, U.S. foreign policy, and and that has spillover effects in whatever part of the world you might be. Of course, uh, many people around the world. Uh, are sh have been shocked by the anti-Muslim rhetoric. Uh, South Africa is a country of great um, religious tolerance and diversity. And so that's been quite shocking, I think, in the Muslim community in South Africa. But I think the greatest problem has been this recession of caring about appearing racist. And of course, because South Africa has such a long history of racism, we've seen an emboldening uh, of racists across the world and, and in South Africa. And so, oh, interesting. yeah, there, there are these movements springing up out of nowhere, you know, being a lot more abrasive about their racism in South Africa. There are people flying to America seeking audiences with, with uh, new right-wing wow. groups saying that they, you know, there's like this group called Afri Forum in South Africa, which is like pretty much a white ethnic interest group. And they flew to the United States and met with John Bolton um, and you wow. know, started talking about all this like conspiracy uh, stuff happening in South Africa. So yeah, it, it affects us. Um, obviously we watch in horror and uh, it's, it's been quite the, quite the wild ride. That is really, yeah, I, I haven't, that's sort of wild, especially in a place like South Africa, it, it almost seems like there's like a resurgence, you're saying, in the same way that like there's, there seems to be like a resurgence here of overt white supremacy, uh, whereas before it was yeah. like hidden a little bit. Now people are like brazen and you're like, well, that is, uh, it, it, it also is a reminder that like the end of Trump isn't the end of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, trying to figure out like, what do we do in that? You know, for us, the, the, the Republicans are becoming a whiter party and a more male party. The left is becoming much more representative of the the demographics of the country, which is really promising. I think that yeah. one of the things that I'm always struck with when we, you know, I do a lot of policing stuff, criminal justice, is uh, how do we have solutions at scale, right? Like that's sort of like the rub is that we figured out how to do it right in like a neighborhood. We figured out how to do it right in like one town or like one community. But it's mm -hmm. like, how do we how do we do the equity work at scale? And what I always think is interesting is that it's like people lose their imagination when it becomes about black people and poor people, right? That like, you know, in America, we gave white people homes, we gave them like free houses, right? There was like a period of time we were like literally giving white people houses to expand the country. 
Yeah, we like gave um, white people free education, like at scale, right? We did it, it was like, we did this, these massive programs for white people. The moment you talk about like giving black people childcare, people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if yeah, a lot well, of people just, just It's just mind blown. Yeah, you're like, how does that work? Uh, so I'm yeah, always interested yeah. in that. And I do think, I think this is something that I, I've had to reckon with as an organizer. And this is where I worry like the Twitter conversation is like mm, maybe not representative of the world is that like black people are also a little more conservative than the people on the internet, you know? Hmm. Hmm. So, you know, we're over here trying to, you know, move police department budgets and that. And like when we poll people, the police are still popular. The police are popular with black hmm. people, white people. Hmm. Like it's not like a white people love the police thing. People yeah. love the police, which is sort of an interesting thing. Now, what's interesting about this moment is that people like us more than they've ever liked us, right? People like the protesters more than they've ever liked the protesters. They don't really like the police less. They just like us both now, which is sort of hmm. a different world to be in. Hmm. But it's such a different thing as an organizer because sometimes you'll say things and people are like, well, I'm not catering to white people. Then I'm like, I'm not even talking about white people. I'm talking about black people. I'm talking about like, I remember in 2014 when we would talk about police violence and black people would tell us like, don't bring that stuff to us. Don't, and we're like, bring it to you. It's already there. I'm just trying to say it. <laughs> but like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in like, how do, we, how do we have the conversation about like shifting our community to be a little more left. Like, I'm not worried about white people, right? White people are white people. They can do their thing. We're gonna have allies. But like, we need to convince more of like our community to believe in some of the lefter things. And I worry that the internet makes it seem like all the black people are like here. And you're like, the black people, there are, there's like a pretty conservative, there's like a socially conservative part of blackness that like we actually have to contend with that I don't, that I worry that like organizers make seem, some people make it seem like those people aren't real. And you're like, no, they are real, you know? That's interesting because in South Africa, and I love how you've just, I had this whole idea of what I was going to ask you. And you're like, hold on, I want to talk about this. And I'm like, let's talk about this because it's, it's, it's important. Like in South Africa, part of the problem that I think we face <laughs> is after the end of apartheid, because before apartheid, it was like pretty obvious. If you're a black person, you're against apartheid and like that's the thing to be, right? But after the end of apartheid, there became a more complicated question about attention between material advantage and, and you've got this history and this legacy of, of black family that needs to be supported. And so, you would expect that after apartheid, black South Africans would maybe have become more progressive, but actually they face more tensions now and the questions about where they stand are more complicated because they have more incentives. Um, and so with the ANC, uh, the, the governing party, even as, as they have strayed from their original uh, promise, supporting them often also gives you material advantages, gives you access to jobs. And so in the same way, it's not always clear that black South Africans will necessarily support the most progressive cause because it's complicated and there are many different things happening at the same time now. Yeah, and I think that, so yes, that's, that's sort of fascinating to hear that, that like this is uh, a problem that we all face in organizing, right? It's also a reminder to um, that we that for for 
also I always think about the fact that we have to contend with violence, right? That like we have to, so we think about the end of prison, when we think about moving beyond policing, is that we, I think it is not fair to say, you know, I think there's, you know, people are like, what do we do about murder, right? What do we do about rape? What do we do? And people say, well, the police don't really deal with that. Like the police don't stop those things now, which, I, which is true, right? Like it's not, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I also think that there are enough, I've talked to enough people, like not hypothetical. I've talked to enough black people in communities across the country who are, they are seriously nervous about violence, right? Like that's like a, they are, so when I talk about the end of police, they are not interested in a rhetorical reply. They're not interested in an essay. They don't want to watch a video about it. They're like, tell me who's going to come when somebody breaks into the house next to me or break into my, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, we have to, I think, we have to meet the question about violence head on and help people sort of understand what alternatives might look like or like what, what that might look like. So when I think about the police, I never think about, I actually think about like, this question of police or no police is like the wrong framing. I think we can't win that. I think that the propaganda of the police is like too deep. I think that people's understanding of like policing as safety is too, like I, I think that's, a, we're dragging it uphill and that's not helpful. Mm. I think that the real question sort of st stems from uh, two core beliefs, right? That like there will always be conflict, no matter what we do, we'll fix poverty, sexism, homelessness, whatever. And there will still be conflict. Like people will have conflict. And that some of that conflict will result in harm, right? So the question becomes, who intervenes in conflict? Who responds to harm? Like those to me are the questions. Mm. The police are the easiest, simplest, and laziest answer to those questions. They're not the best, right? So it's easy. So as an organizer, I can have a conversation with my aunt or community members about like, you know, here's a conflict. What's the best intervention? She can, that is like, a, every, everybody can meet me there. And then I can use that as a way to move them away from like, you know, once we start parsing out the answers, the police just are not, the, they're not the best answer. But when I try and do this like police or no police, it just puts me in a box that is like solely on the police playground. And like, mm -hmm. I think that's like a losing box. In the same way with prison, I think that the question about prison is not prison or no prison. It, it sort of starts from this understanding that like people have that some people should be separated from society. That there's some things you do that are so wrong, you should be separated from society. And the question becomes, if so, then how? Right, like if we if, if you murdered uh, twenty kids, should you be around kids again? I, probably not. The question becomes, how do we keep you away from kids? Prison is the easiest, simplest, and laziest answer to that question. Not convinced it's the best. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, it's 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 a fascinating idea, and it's it's interesting to see how that discourse has played out in South Africa. Um, of course, you know since. Uh, 25th of May, George Floyd, um, you know, South Africa has also had a long history in the democratic era um, of police violence and police brutality. And so while the protest, the wave of protest was happening um, on where you are, we're watching and thinking, wow, firstly, wow, this has caught incredible traction. Didn't think that this was possible. But also we're trying to interpret in some ways what, what the police brutality we see in South Africa means for the global question. And, and the difference we, we face here is that we don't necessarily have a problem of a lack of representation of people of color in, in the police, for example, right? 
Um, <laughs> that's not our problem. However, what we've noticed in the last uh, 27 years is that just because you have a change in power, uh, a black majority government, does not mean that the police no longer pursue a white supremacist agenda or that the gut reaction of police is not in favor of white supremacy. And so we've got that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, the, the sheer levels of violence in our society, the, the murder rates, the levels of sexual violence um, and just crime are so high that defunding the police has, has not really been a, a major public conversation, but police brutality and how we resolve the, 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 the utter contempt that police have for particularly poor black South Africans um, has, been, has been a major question. And so it's interesting how those two worlds have in some ways collided, but in some ways are, are very different. Yeah, yeah, you're, you, you, we seem to be saying the same thing that like violence is real in community, you know, that like people, people's experience of violence is real. And that changes the calculus that we have as organizers about like how we navigate through solutions, you know what I mean? Into, and I worry that like some people are dismissive of those experiences, but like I'm in, I'm in Baltimore and it's like, you know, this will be the sixth year of 300 murders. And that is, that is enough people impacted where like when we talk about the police, it's like a little dicey because people mm -hmm. definitely don't want them to hurt people, don't want them to kill them, but they want them, right? Yeah. And, like, and like, you know, so that's one. The second thing that we found to be really interesting is that while people do sort of love the police generally, like they like policing, mm -hmm. they agree with us on almost every sort of sub fix, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm like, break the police union contract, they're like, yes. If I'm like, change your support policy, yes. I'm like, if I'm like, you know, make it easier to fire them, yes. Make it easier to do that. Like, all the, everything that we sort of look at uh, underneath, like, the big bucket, like, every time we're trying to strip yeah. power, or move, like, across the board, people are generally like, got it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So an organizer, that's sort of hopeful because, mm. you know, one of the ways that we think about breaking a system is that if we can't break it, if we can't sort of do it top down, like if we can't say sort of like moving up policing today or whatever, then like we can actually do it like inside out. Like we can like take these pieces and just do all the pieces in such an incredible way that like eventually mm. we get to the same goal, right? Mm. And I do think that part of our work as organizers is to not be so arrogant to believe that the only way to enter is the way we enter, right? So some people can enter from a defund the police and that's cool. Some people can enter from a like, we can live in the world without the police. That's dope. Some people can't, and because they can't enter that way doesn't mean that they like don't love black people, don't believe in justice, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I worry that that's how because like, again, I forget white people, but like thinking about black people, it's like my aunt doesn't not love black people because she's like nervous about who's gonna reply when we move beyond policing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, well, I wanna, I wanna take a step back because there's, there's something that's been affecting you, which I think also has echoes here in South Africa. Um, and something where I, I feel the South African audience would be really interested to hear. I was shocked when I, when I heard um, about this case that, that you know, you've, been, you've been involved with, which has been essentially brought against you. Um, can you just explain for, for the audience um, how you came to be basically put before courts for a protest that you happened to organize where someone got injured, totally unlinked to anything you did. 
at that protest and it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court? Yes, yeah, it's been a long, you know, we're not done with the case. The case is still, uh, the case is still trucking along, but we did win at the court. So in November, 2016, there was, uh, the police killed uh, Alton Sterling and they killed uh, another man uh, in at the same time, like roughly the same time. And it was a big uproar in the country. And the Baton Rouge organizers were like, can you come down? I was like, yeah, I just got a job though. So I was like, I'll come down after work. So I, I, I go down and I'm in Baton Rouge for like, I don't know, 15 hours. Like I, I wasn't in Baton Rouge a lot. I like literally landed, we met with some people and then I went to sleep because I was exhausted, wake up and then we go out. And, and it's sort of like, you know, we blocked up this big highway, the police were like on 10,000. It was just like a whole thing. And the police at one point were like, get out of the street. And I'm like, cool, I just started this job. I was achieving the capital for the school system. I told the superintendent I wouldn't get in, like I, I'd sort of like lay low. So the police were like, get out of the street. And <laughs> normally I'm like, you know what? You don't control, like the streets are the people's streets, right? But they were like, get out of the street. So I'm like, you know what? I'm laying low, cool, let me get out of the street. Mm. So I videotaped him, he's like, get out of the street. I show like the line where like the street is. I'm like, I'm out the street, cool. And the next thing I know, there's like a, there's like a, people are running. So I get caught in like this rush of people running. I fall, not a big deal. I go to get up and I can't get up. And I'm like, dang, I'm like, really? I'm like pinned down in this group of people. And I realized that the reason I can't get up is actually the police are holding, they're like pressing my shoulders down. Hmm. And I'm like, be not good. So then I throw my phone. I don't even know what I was thinking. I throw my phone because I don't want the police to get my phone. So I throw the phone hoping my friends are, I can't see anybody. All I can see is the police at this way. Hoping my friends get it. And then I, um, and then I'm in custody for like the next 16, 17 hours. So that started it, but you know, it was one of those things where like the police, a police officer said that night that he got hit by a rock and that I was the cause of him getting hit by a rock. Uh, we got the case dismissed at the lowest court, which was great. They appealed and then we lost at the court of appeals four times, which is wild. Then it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court relisted it three times. So like, we get a date that says like, the Supreme Court's gonna like, entertain the idea of your case on this day. And then like the next Monday, they post everything online, how they decided. So my Monday comes up and there's, my case isn't even on the list. So we're like, what's going on? And then it gets relisted for the next. And then the next Monday comes, the case isn't on the list. And we're like, what is going on? And then, what? so then I just like, I'm like, I surrender to God, whatever it is, like it is what it is. <laughs> And then literally I'm like getting a bagel or something and I'm just on Twitter. And then I see like Dre McKesson wins Supreme Court case. I see it on Twitter first. Like I, that's how I learned. So then I call the lawyer and I'm like, did we just, did we win this thing? So yeah. the good news is that, you know, this would have been the first, this was actually the first case about the right to protest uh, since the civil, since the seminal case, the Claiborne decision in the civil rights movement. So the Supreme Court, in, in some ways affirmed uh, this and, and withheld or upheld the original ruling, which is dope. But there's like this wonky part of the law where they sent a part of the case back to Louisiana mm. State Supreme Court for mm. them to make a decision about a part of the case. Now, if, we, if the court rules the way we think they should rule in Louisiana, we're good to go and uh, it's all done. If they don't, then we're back at the Supreme Court. So, you know, we'll wow. see, but yeah, it's well, been a long time. It's firstly like I just can't imagine what it must have been like for such a long period, you know, having the, the weight of this case um, bearing on your shoulders and you paint this 
incredible picture um, at, in the opening of your book when, when, you know, someone's waiting and they deliver the, the papers and you realize something's, oh, yeah. something's happening. Um, and it's funny, the book, did, have you written a book yet? Yes. Writing a book is like dying a little bit, as you know, because. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it's funny when people talk about parts of the book sometimes, I like, like for me, it was like, I let it go. Like I wrote it mm. and I let it go. I'm like, so I'm like, yeah. you're right. I'm like, how did you know that he did that? And I'm like, <laughs> that guy delivered the, um, he delivered the, like the yep. um, suit to me. He was like sitting outside the house. I thought I was going to die. I, know. I literally was like, you know what? I lived a good life. <laughs> it's been great. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, can, I, I can only imagine. I, and I mean, when, when I heard that, the case had reached the Supreme Court, I was shocked, but I was also thinking about how it's an example of a much broader problem, which is um, the way that black protest is framed as being inherently violent and the burdens that that places on people who happen to organize protests. Um, so in South Africa, our, our constitutional court, which is the equivalent of the Supreme Court, actually recently heard a case about incitement and it was all about how we've still got this apartheid or we still had this apartheid law where even if you even if nothing ever happened after you said something if it was a judge that you had incited some kind of violence you could be you, you could be imprisoned um, and this was obviously to suppress dissent during apartheid but somewhere along the line someone didn't think it was a good idea to like repeal this law so we've had all these arguments going on um, in our country about you know what does it mean to participate in a protest? Why when black people protest, is it seen as violent? Or could it be more framed as incitement and not when white people protest, for example? And our Supreme Court or Constitutional Court has just um, declared that law invalid, but it, it, it has been in place for the last 27 years of our democracy. It, did, you, did you experience a backlash after the protests? And I, and I ask because, you know, what we find in, in the first, in 2014, I, I didn't understand it well, right? I was like, I was so, so deep in it, very tunnel vision in a good way uh, that I was, you know, I just didn't know. And then this time I'm like, I get it. I know that there's a window and the window will close, right? Like we will be the news every day. It'll be the only thing people are talking about. And then one day the media will get tired of it and it'll be something else. And then, and then like everything changes then, right? So what we what we experience is like that happened, and then and then it's COVID again, and then we are experiencing a, an increase in murders across the country, like shootings, shooting murders. Uh, so then it becomes communities are violent and dangerous. Like that was like the immediate like that is what happened. We like got stuck in this whirlwind of like violent crime is increasing, murders, da 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 da, and then people who were sympathetic just like two weeks ago are now suddenly afraid that if they do this, it'll like increased community about you know it was it was a pretty swift so as an organizer like i was trying to get as much as we could in that window because i knew the window was going to close but in the window everything was possible you know in the window people are like we could disband the police department we you know like that was what people were saying and then and now we're in this this moment where people are less some people are less imaginative and it's an election year so we just did the presidential election but a lot of municipal elections so like mayors state house something like that they are next year so people are punting some people either want to be heroes so they're doing it now they're like doing they're trying to do progressive legislation to get ready for the election like so they can have something passed before election 
And then some people are trying to ride out and do nothing that might even be controversial from now until election day so that they can just right. get another four years and then fight. But like the backlash, you know, the response to protests is, is like sort of like clockwork at this point that like there'll be something crazy that becomes a narrative after this. Uh, is yeah. that, does that happen there? So, so firstly, you're a far more accomplished organizer than I am. You know, I've, I've just written a book, um, said some things in South Africa. Um, we had major waves of protest in our country. Um, and we're in a period now, which I think you actually might be entering into to the extent that wrongly. Uh, so we, we had a, a president, um, President Zuma, who was very unpopular. Um, and you know, we went into the spiral of corruption in addition to all of our white supremacy problems. So there was like a period in 2015 and 2016 where the country felt like something was on the brink of erupting. There were major student protests, uh, you know, just there have always been protests against the lack of service delivery in townships. Um, but then what happened was there was a change in leadership and a new president uh, smooth talking, saying all the right things, kind of wrong-footed everyone. And now I would say South Africa has been quite a low ebb in terms of um, the kind of major protests that we were seeing in, 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 the, pre, in the period before that. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we are. And I worry with the Biden administration and, and, and with Harris and with all these new appointments and all the right things that are being said, that... Just as there's a moment of celebration, there's also often um, a moment where you're wrong-footed and, and momentum is lost and, and you're not sure how, how, to, how to protest against something that you're not necessarily as vehemently against as, as you were before. So it feels like we're kind of in, in that moment in South Africa where false hope has come, everyone got wrong-footed and now everyone needs to regroup and realize that like, nothing major has actually changed. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I, I, I'm a little worried by people's, you know, Biden and Harris haven't started yet, you know? So I'm like, get these people, we don't even know who the attorney general is going to be yet. Like, there's like a, the domestic team hasn't really been appointed, you know? So like, we have a, there's like a lot of open, we don't know. Uh, what, I, what I do know, especially about the police in the U.S., is that there are 18,000 police departments, they're local and state. It's not the federal government, Right. And then when we think about prisons and, and jails here in the U.S., there are about 2.3 million people incarcerated. 200,000 of them are in federal prison. Small, small, small percentage in the grand scheme, right? So Biden could let everybody out of prison tomorrow in federal prison, and it will not change mass incarceration. It will change those people's lives, for sure. It will not change the landscape. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I worry that people, I, I, I worry that like Biden and Harris become this like smoke screen so that like local, mm. local politicians aren't on the hook for like mm. the terror that is happening. You know, if your prison's Absolutely. bad, it is like your governor and your legislature. Like that's the, it's not Biden and do it. You know, mm. like, mm. So, so I do worry about that. I, I do think you're right though, that like there is something really interesting when you're fighting against somebody like Trump, you can say whatever you want because A, he's not listening and B, the best you can do is sort of build your base because there is, he's unmovable, right? Yeah. 
I, I think that like, you know, the Biden-Harris administration will be interesting to see how they move on some of the domestic policy because they will be stuck in this big tent of some people who are very progressive, some people who are like, I want this thing to be less bad. And, and like, but they are all a part of the same coalition, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think that one of the things that Biden-Harris, uh, that I see them doing like clearly is that they realize that like the goal was not to win the internet. It wasn't to lose it, but like you didn't need to win it, right? Right, right. And I and I think that there's something happening where, um, where I think that they are helping. They are they're sort of they're I don't know what the word is, but they definitely are acknowledging that like whether they trend on Twitter or not doesn't matter. Like that's I think that that is like their ethos. Whereas you see a lot of politicians like the news cycle is really important to how they make decisions and da da da. And it's been interesting to watch Biden and Harris from like this early. They're like, you know what? You can write 10,000 articles about this person or da 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 And like, that will not be the thing that moves us. It might inform us. It might be interesting. We might think about it, but that won't be like the thing. And, and I've been interested to see what, what that looks like. And, you know, even on the transition team, they're not like, they didn't even, they're, they're it's like a, how do I say this? It, you know, there are not as many um, people that some of the furthest people on the left wanted to be on the transition team, right? Right, right. And like that to me is a, is a right. it, it sort of is this interesting thing about like, how did you win? And then like, what allowed you to win? Mm. Um, and I do think that like, I know that whether the transition team or not, the transition team is reaching out to people like of all types, like, you know, super left, you know, more in the middle, super right. Like they, the transition team members are actually doing like a really broad swath. Like I do that for back. Um, but it will be interesting to see who they put in part of, in, 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 uh, in charge of the, the um, Department of Justice. And the other thing is that if we win Georgia, game's on, right? If we don't win Georgia and have to go through the Senate, if we have to go through the, we have to get two Republicans to confirm people, right. that is going to be like a much more middle road cap, mm. you know, like, because mm. if we mm. get, if we get the Senate, they could put anybody, you know, we, we yeah. can get the furthest left, we could, you know, Obama could be on the Supreme Court tomorrow. <laughs> if we get, if we lose those two seats, it is going to be, mm. you know, who knows. I, I'd like to have Obama on the Supreme Court if your case ever goes back there. So yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think Michelle is like, chill out. She's like, you had eight years, chill out. One day we must talk about this, this memoir, which I've just finished, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, yeah, it, it will be interesting to watch what happens with the transition team. Again, from a global perspective, it will be really important. Uh, interesting to watch in South Africa. Um, I've been looking at the national security team that he's assembled um, with some interest. Um, and yeah, just just thinking about what posture Biden might take. Um, I think there's a there's a bit of uncertainty about whether there'll be a reversion to what might be a more palatable domestic policy, but then uh, a foreign policy which which still you know um, undermines Black life. So we're watching to see what happens with the national security team and and what kind of foreign policy posture Biden will take. But as you say, it's uh, it's early. It's early days, and it's it's hard to know. Um, one thing I did, you know, yeah. Oh, the last thing I'll say is that it is. You know, we knew it was coming. We knew that the Republicans would 
uh, act like the last four years didn't happen, right? So we see people being like, I can't believe Biden's not transparent. And you're like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding? Right, this man, this man is like doing whatever he wants and y'all haven't said anything. And now you're like, Biden, like there was a, there was a, new, a news person who was like, Biden um, wasn't as transparent about his foot injury. You're like, is that really <laughs> what we're doing? You're like, Trump is like, Trump's doctor is like making up stuff. And you're just like, well, this is right. what he said. It's like, come on. Like that. Know, right. And I and I also think that we can't let the Republicans act like they weren't complicit. You know, like what the, what the party did that was really smart for them is that they just were quiet. Trump was doing all this wild stuff. They did, they voted however he wanted, but they themselves didn't make public statements and he tweeted like they were, and now they're setting themselves up for being like, I didn't support that. They're like, mm. I never, and you're like, Trump, mm. Mm. You know, the president is really powerful. The, the president can't do what Trump did alone. He was able That's to do it because of the Senate, you know, That's like true. because of the party. And like, we can't let those people act like they just were like innocent bystanders. They were like complicit in every step of the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And the danger is that you get a smarter Trump next time. You know, you get someone who, who isn't so, so brash, but understands the way that he can incite Trump's base or she can incite Trump's base. And, and then, then we have real, real problems because then it's like, it's no longer even a circus. It's just like a surgical procedure. Um, yeah. And it feels like that's, that's, that's a real danger. I think that's like a, a great way to put it. It's no longer a circus. It's a surgical procedure. Mm. You know, it is interesting too. you know, what people, people have said exactly what you said, that the next version of Trump from the Republicans is going to be a person of color or a woman. Mm. to like to, to sort of mm. cut through oh, like the, the wildness of trump yeah. and like yeah. you know to, to fend off the race issues and da, 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 da. and you yeah. know you get a if you get a black woman trump being like ban the muslims mm. it's a very you know white people are like yes and then like the, <laughs> the See? black people are like well maybe that makes sense and you're like yeah. no 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 it makes sense in doesn't make sense now yeah um, so yeah. i do think that's something to be like really nervous about yeah, we have that in South Africa now. It's like they're, they're all these emerging conservative black politicians and you just don't know what to do because you're like, but maybe, no, uh, sorry, I, I'm used to listening, but this time I'm not listening because like, I'm pretty right. sure this is wrong. Um, right. But yeah, Dira, it's, it's, it's really great to, to speak. The one thing I wanted to say uh, just to round off is, by the way, a big Crooked Media fan, um, both Pod Save America and Pod Save the People, and I'm really interested in this, in this step that you've taken um, with Pod Save the People into media and, and framing and having conversations and being the one to ask the questions and not just answer the questions. Um, and I wondered why you thought that was an important step, number one. And number two, whether you think it's worth thinking more deeply about like media collaborations across um like like this i've never seen anything like this I, south africa has a huge conversation on racial justice the u.s does too but we we never seem to have those those conversations whereas i can tell you right now on all the conservative south african podcasts jordan peterson republican politicians they, they've got it all figured out you know yeah. um so so yeah, I wonder what you think of the prospects of that. And, 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 and so, yeah, the importance of media in general and, and are we doing enough for a, a trans-continental um, racial justice conversation? Yeah, I think that, you know, the reason I started the podcast is I wanted people, I wanted to create something where I learned and where other people learn. Like, that was, that was it. 
And I, mm-hmm. I felt like I reached the ceiling on Twitter that like, I've learned a ton mm-hmm. on Twitter, like a ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, mm-hmm. but I felt like I was not learning as much as, as I was just participating in really interesting conversations, which is dope. Mm-hmm. Not the same thing as learning all the time. So when I, when I set up the podcast, it was like, can I get four people who all bring something new? They bring a piece of news that like nobody knows. We don't talk about it at all until we record. And then it's fresh. Like I'm like every episode, I'm like, oh, I never thought about that. That was good. And like, I wanted, I wanted people to be in on that. And then my ego is like, fine. So I don't need like, you know, I had those interviews. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, can you tell me about this? I have no clue. And mm-hmm. because it's my podcast, I can invite like whoever I want. So like to have a big you know the podcast was number two in the country before we even had an episode so it's like we haven't we had a big reach we have a big reach like how can i get people on and ask them like our second episode it was like we talked about the difference between medicare and medicaid and like i didn't know that you know like and i had the former Mm. head of medicare Medicaid, and he's explaining it and like that was one of the most powerful episodes like we did one um i was obsessed with uh teeth sealant do you know sealants like you can get your teeth sealed no. You can get like uh, kids, mostly kids do it. They can get like essentially a very, very thin layer of plastic put over their molars so okay. they can't get cavities because kids just don't brush their teeth regularly, even if you want them to. So we did this whole episode with, with a set of dental folks around yeah. sealant because there was, a, there was a high profile case of a kid whose tooth got infected and he died. Mm. And so mm. right, we do sealants. I get all these emails from parents being like, did not get my teeth, my, my kids' teeth sealed, got them sealed. Thank yeah. you. And you're like, that is like why we have the, like, that's like what we're supposed to do because it, you know, it matters. Um, mm, mm, and it, mm. or like even, you know, in America, post offices used to be banks, like not too long ago. Like every post office used to be a bank, or most of them. And I had somebody on who she studies money. And she said it. She was like, we should go back to this and da da da. And a state sen- I mean, a United States senator, she listened to it. She introduced a bill on postal banking because of the podcast episode, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, that, or even there's a recent one actually. So one of the recent episodes, like three weeks ago, uh, we, I, I, my news was that in New York State, they will take your license with you, when you get incarcerated and then they don't give you the license back when you get out, right? So you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So you, you get like released from prison and like you're, you have no ID. And I covered it as a news thing. There's a state senator in New York, his wife listens to the pod, she hears it. And then she calls him and is like, mm. you need to introduce a bill about this. So I get an email being like, we're introducing this bill because the podcast was okay, help us. And it's like, that is a, at our best, that is what we can do, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's something about framing a question and having a conversation which feels like it comes after activism or protest, but in many ways, some sometimes comes before it or policy change. Yeah. 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 Well, um, Dira, I just want to thank you again for coming on to SMWX. It's, it's been a great honor for us to have you. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just been a really great conversation. So thank you so much for gracing our audience with your presence and all the best going forward as, as we approach a new year. I would love to continue uh, being in community. And if there's anything I can ever help, let me know. And uh, if there's any way that we can work together, let's do it. Likewise. And if anyone watching hasn't subscribed to Pod Save the People, from a South African perspective, fantastic podcast to listen to, to draw those links. So make sure you do subscribe. And anyone in the US, click the subscribe button below. Talk to you later. Peace out.